On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, mandatory mini camps are behind us, training camp is in front of us, and we'll be joined by the creative producer behind Hard Knocks, the man that's done it for the last 12 years and will be doing it again this summer for NFL Films. Emmy Award winning filmmaker for NFL Films, Ken Rogers, joins us to explain what will happen this summer as NFL Films films the Oakland Raiders for Hard Knocks. And then we'll be joined by the new general manager of the New York Jets, Joe Douglas, as he breaks down that roster and talks about some of the men who have influenced his journey today that have led him to New Jersey to become the general manager of the New York Jets. But first, Ken Rogers. Last week, we heard the news that the Oakland Raiders are going to be featured on Hard Knocks. It debuts August 6th, that Tuesday night, which appointment television for every NFL fan and people like my wife who aren't even NFL fans that love watching your creation, Ken. So what is your mindset going into this summer now that we know that it's going to be the Oakland Raiders? Put John Gruden on screen. <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's the easy answer. I, I think the Raiders right away when you think of them, you think of the characters they have now, and and you know pe- people come up to me and say, "Hey, you know, you should put Antonio Brown on the on the show." Oh, thanks. I hadn't have thought of that. <laughs> um, there's plenty of characters, but what intrigues me the most, I mean, uh, right away you go to those that list of characters, whether it's Gruden, Mayock, Brown, Derek Carr, and of course they they're free agents and incognito and perfect. Everyone's going to want to talk about. I think of the Raiders' mystique and just. The role they've played in the history of the NFL, and I'm nowhere near the historian that a lot of people through NFL films history have been, but Steve Sable used to always tell us the league is better when the Raiders are front and center because they're the perfect villains. And I just love that. I've always loved the Raiders, but hated them at the same time as as a kid growing up. And then when I started working for the league, I said, these guys are just the perfect foil, and you always want them to be good. It was really a bummer for me as a storyteller and a fan when they had all these down years in a row. It, uh, it just felt like the league was missing something. Where's the bad guy that's threatening everything? You know, that's yep. the Raiders. Uh, and I'm mo- I'm most happy about being able to highlight a team like that 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 is kind of unapologetically themselves and always have been. And to me, that's the making of, of a great show. Now, how many people do you bring? When do you get started? What are some logistics behind this? Because I know we all know how much work goes into this, but I don't think the public really knows how many people from NFL Films are working almost around the clock to get this done. Uh, there's about 120 people that touch this show uh, around the clock to, to get it done. The problem is twofold. Uh the first is the amount of footage we shoot. A lot of people don't believe it when they watch the show, but you know for sure training camp is boring. Yeah. It's awful. I mean, nothing happens. It's the same route. Let's run this route. Let's talk about this play. Let's sit in this meeting and study this thing. There is not a lot of fun to be had. Uh, so we have to shoot everything in order to just get some entertaining moments and some drama uh, that really represents the the battle that these guys are going through internally to try to make the team and to succeed. 
so we shoot about 40 hours a, a day. We shoot, there's over 250 hours a week that comes straight into NFL films from the field uh, an hour or so after it's shot. And huh. we have a team of 30 uh, producers uh, and editors who are putting together storylines. And we start with 90 storylines. We start with 90 possibilities because that's how many people are on the roster, plus coaching staff, plus any front office or uh, extraneous characters. And as we go, we start deciding, okay, who's going to be in this show? And by the end of a week, you have to have that answer. because You're getting the footage every day. You can't say, well, that's great. We got this great scene today. Let's take a couple days and work on it. No, you have another whole day being shot tomorrow. You've got to figure it out. And by the end of the day, uh, end of the week, we have, you know, about three hours of usable material. And then we have to get it down to what we feel is the most representative hour. So the amount of footage is just awful and intimidating. And that would be one thing that that happens on shows like uh, Survivor, where they, yeah. they just shoot and shoot and shoot. But they've got months and months and months to edit the storylines. We have to do it in real time. We shoot up until Monday for every Tuesday night episode and get it on the air. So there's a lot of trusting your gut and saying, this is great. Put it on the air and let's see how people react to it. And we've learned to trust our own instincts and say, you know, we're fans at heart. We love football. We love filmmaking. We love players and coaches. If something hits us and we feel like that is just, a, that's yeah. a great moment. And if friends were in the office and we would say, oh, we want to show you this, that's what we want to show the public. No holds barred. Here's the stuff that's the best hour each week. Well, Ken, it's like being a newspaper reporter. You're on the scene. You go in with an idea of what you may or may not be writing about reporting on that day. And sometimes it holds up and sometimes it doesn't, but you're struck by certain things where even if you have a plan, sometimes you'll see something you say, this, this has got to get on. Like, I got to write about this. I would imagine it's got to be the same type of mindset for you and your crew. Yeah. And that's the frustrating part really throughout July mostly is you want to start working and you can, I can sit here and tell you all the, the, storylines I think might happen, uh, not a large percentage of them are actually going to happen. So you have to be willing to throw out your plan and go with what is actually the story. Uh, and that's changed every year. It's changed every season. It's impossible to say, here's what this season is going to be about. You know, uh, it's all guided by what happens there mm -hmm. in real time. And it's a reactive show when it comes to storytelling. There is no, we don't determine who's, who rooms with who or who gets what snaps. We simply shoot and try to translate everything that's happening in that 250 hours to the audience. Um, and in that way, I think players have really responded and saying, hey, this, this shows the truth because there is no preconceived yeah. storylines. It's, hey, that's actually what the story was this week. They did you, a good job. You talk about the truth, and as you know, I don't think, well, I know, you know, that going into this, teams don't want you around, just like they don't want me around. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> inconceivable so, that they wouldn't want us around. So how long does it take before 
you become a part of their routine. They don't notice you're around, and you've gained their trust to put on the great shows that you have all these years. Uh, it's probably about 48 hours, 72 hours max. It really is because there's so much more that they have to worry about. In the grand scheme of things, and I always try to say this to to teams and coaches, mm-hmm. Hard Knocks is zero compared to all the worries that will determine whether or not you succeed on the field. Every play call is more important than whether or not you appear on the show. This is just what the NFL is. All the all of our lives revolve around the fact that people care about what's happening and our job is to spread what's happening to the fans. I'm sure there are plenty of coaches who complain about back-to-back West Coast trips or having to go to Europe or mm-hmm. playing on Thursday night after a Sunday night football game. But when they're asked to do it, they, I think, at least understand, I don't like it, but this is part of what we signed up for. This is the National Football League, and Hard Knocks is part of that. I think reporters are part of that. I, I, I think everything that revolves around the team, coaches may be reluctant uh, to participate in some of it, but at the same time, deep down, they recognize that that's why they're getting paid, and that's why so many people care about whether or not they win or lose is because there's information going out to the fans, and it's the greatest soap opera there is, um, and it only keeps getting bigger. I couldn't have imagined when I started running the show 12 years ago that Hard Knocks would be in the conversation, people asking who is going to be on the show. I mean, it's I, a big deal. I, it's crazy. I remember in '07, Adam, that when we were on the um, Kansas City Chiefs, I was enthralled because the first show, Jason Whitlock in Kansas City wrote something about us, and we had one article out there about the show. And I, oh my gosh, somebody wrote about us. I was thrilled. Oh gosh. And you fast forward through the, the Chad years and the Rex Ryan years and the Billy O'Brien years. And now I look at all the talk around the show and I, I, I really can't believe it. And it's, it's not us. I don't believe it's us as filmmakers, though. I think we do a fantastic job here. I think it's just the national football league. People cannot get enough of it. And if you say, Hey, we're going to give you, the real, real deep inside stuff for five weeks on a team and let you get to know who John Gruden is or Derek Carr is, they, they can't resist it. And it's just become such a big part of, of the NFL schedule that we're honestly here overwhelmed um, by the attention. It's crazy how popular the show has gotten, and, and we're certainly not complaining, and it's, it's a true blessing. Well, how much has to do with the growth of reality TV in this day and age? Because it's not just Hard Knocks that has grown in popularity. I know I watch a lot of Bravo TV and a lot of Housewife shows. I would never imagine watching them. My wife loves that. People love Survivor. They love all these shows that are real, Ken. And how much of Hard Knocks' success is tied to the popularity growth of reality TV? A lot, and I'm glad I'm not the only one that watches those shows with, oh. their, with their wife. With their wife. <laughs> I watch them all, so, so she'll watch Hard Knocks. That's how it works. Yeah, that Really, it, you're absolutely right, and what's amazing um, is that of all NFL-related television shows, Hard Knocks uh, 
with our market research, has been shown to have by far the largest female audience. And it's because it's not really about football, right? It's a workplace drama, just like the workplace dramas you see on other reality TV shows. It, it could be set at a laundromat or a hairdresser's, and if you had those characters, you'd still be interested. The fact that it's, you know, great football players who are young and fit and great personalities, that certainly helps. And, and you know, the job is an attractive job. But at, at the core, it's not that much different than a lot of reality shows. I think that was never really thought of in sports until Hard Knocks. In 2001, when, when we started with the Baltimore Ravens, there were a few reality shows. Real World was on the air. Um, certainly Survivor was on the air. The, they existed, but there wasn't a lot of workplace. It was all set up. You know, Survivor, I don't know how that's reality television when it's... I've never been trapped on an island with a bunch of people, so it's not reality to me. Um, no one's ever bought me a shore house at the Jersey Shore and <laughs> let me party with my friends, so that's not reality. Yeah. Hard Knocks, when it came out, was one of the first shows that just said, we're not going to determine anything. We're not going to set up the situation. There's enough drama here. We're going to just present it. And it was one of the early shows that did that and proved that you don't have to script it, that you can just follow interesting people in an interesting situation, whether it's married at first sight or an NFL training camp, and you're going to be fascinated by them if they're a great character because all of those shows rely on one thing that uh, we take pride in, which is relatability. Right. A lot of a lot of people, I'm sure you hear this all the time, think, oh, you know, those spoiled NFL players, they get paid millions of dollars to play a kid's game. I think you watch this show and you realize, wow, it's hard. This is, this is a really hard job. And, hey, I work hard at whatever I do in my life, and here are these guys that I only see them – on Sundays with their helmet on and they get cheered by 70,000 people in a stadium. But look at them in the middle of the summer, working their butts off, sweating, falling asleep in meetings because they, they're just told to study and study and study. Yep. And all they're trying to do is beat the longest odds, maybe of any profession out there to get a job, to keep a job, to, to have a dream, to, to put food on their table. And it's, it's, they're really not that different from the rest of us. They're incredible athletes, but they're facing the same odds that a that a teacher might face or a welder or anyone out there in the real world. Do you find yourself, while you're filming the show, rooting for certain players to make the team or even not make the team? You know, it's funny. That's a good question. I, I've never rooted for someone to not make the team. Um, and I, I feel that's because there really is never a feeling – in camp that the team wants to get rid of any anybody. I think we always talk to the coaches after camp is over and they say, look, I wish I could keep them all. Yeah. And the very hardest thing about training camp is probably also the most talked about of hard knocks, which is the cuts is it's brutal on coaches. And, you know, they, ha they hate it. They, it's a really hard day for them, as you know. It's awful, and, and all of us can relate to that. It, it is tough. It's, I mean, can you imagine having to, to essentially fire somebody who really just started and really thought they had a chance? Well, well, well let me just put it in a different way. Can they basically 
these players sign with them in January, February, March maybe, April if they're drafted, and they go through this entire offseason program, they're around these players, these men, they give their heart, their soul to this team, and you're around them all day long at practice, meetings, everything, and then you have to basically squash their dreams. That's yeah, not fun. And, yeah, and none of them have done a bad job. That's, that's what a lot of people don't get. Uh, fans in general, of course, you know, they can be rough. But there's no lazy football players at a training camp. If they're lazy and they're not talented, or they wouldn't even be at a camp. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who are the very, very best of the very, very best coming out of college. Yeah. And who were only the very, very best coming out of high school. And it's just you're, you're not as good as the next person above you. It's, it's not that you're bad. It's that you're just not quite good enough on this team, on, on that roster. Uh, and so it's, it's heartbreaking because you're telling someone that has probably succeeded most of their life in this game and probably been, for many of them, the, the hometown hero who went off and, and won big football games uh, in high school and college and uh, was the talk of campus. And then they show up in the NFL and they realize, wow, this isn't going to keep going like that. And it, it's, a, it's brutal, but it's, it's really the – it's a crucible of emotions. It's just you're filled with everything watching it. I can't imagine being them, but watching it and filming it here is so emotionally draining on us that when it's over, we we all have to take a week and just regroup because it's it's emotionally tough to see people that you've cared about for five weeks be told you're not going to be here anymore. Yeah. Now, you've done the show for 12 years. Is there a favorite series or year that you've done, team experience that you had that stands out to you that when you get done, you say, I know that, boy, I really enjoyed doing that one. That really one really worked out well. You know, it was easy for years to say Rex and the Jets because it really crossed us over. I remember we uh, I was just randomly watching TV one night and Hard Knocks was an answer on Jeopardy and I wow. thought what uh, what an amazing thing that wow. has just happened here because Rex took us to that spot. But I was you know that that was the um fourth year that we were we brought the show back uh, in 2007 after a five-year hiatus so you know we were still finding our feet I think we really hit our stride come the Houston Texans and really found the comfort level of anything that happens at camp we're going to be able to handle we know everything that can happen now and we're prepared we have no idea what's going to happen but when it happens we'll be able to handle it. We had gone through Rex. Uh, we had gone through Chad Ochocinco uh, in two places, uh, certainly in Miami, losing his job, you know, Co- Coach Philbin uh, cutting him at the end of the second episode. You know, we, we had gone through injuries and, and season-ending injuries and fist fights and everything that could happen at camp. And then came along Bill O'Brien, who I thought, was Rex part two in terms of his personality. And he was just so great that I, I I think I'll look back at that season as one that solidified the show as must see TV each year, no matter which, which team is, is featured. And what about the Texans stood out to you though? Like that, that, that they catapulted you to that area. There was a 
comfort level for them that made us comfortable, that they just, they didn't care. They, they were okay with who they were. Vince Wilfork was who he was. And, you know, Bill O'Brien certainly was who he was. And there was, they, it, didn't necessarily want us there like everyone else, but they weren't about to change who they were. Um, and you could sense that something was happening there. And this was Bill O'Brien's second season. So, you know, they had not yet even won a division and they won the division after being on the show, which a lot of people don't talk about that, uh, that we actually have a pretty great record after appearing on the show uh, for teams. But they, this was sort of almost like the Browns last year. I think the starting point for something really building and we were there on the ground floor and got to see everything that was just starting to happen in Houston under Bill O'Brien. Uh, and while they haven't gone all the way, I think they've been a fascinating team. And we were there early. And it's because Bill O'Brien doesn't try to hide who he is. He, This is me. I'm going to concentrate on playing football. And that makes great television. So in relation to the Raiders this summer, we talked about some of the obvious storylines. Obviously, John Gruden and Vontaze Perfect and Antonio Brown. But you couldn't predict right now, as I'm sure you've looked over the Raiders roster and some of the stories they have going, who could be one of these guys that the public doesn't know that NFL films might be promoting or turn into a star like Carl Nassib turned into a star for all his financial advice with the Cleveland Browns. That's right. And the draft class and the free agent class is mostly unknown to us. We would do the amount of research that anyone on the internet could do right now. Um, we might have a little more in, in, intel through the team and, and through our contacts being around the NFL so much. Uh, but, you know, we haven't spent days and days with Josh Jacobs in Alabama. We've been making NFL films. So mm-hmm. now that he's in the NFL, we're going to get to know him and see if he, uh, you know, A, is a great running back and B, we'll find out who he is as a person. And I know, just in preliminary research, someone like that, well, that's going to be great. Uh, there's lesser-known people that, you know, that didn't play at Alabama. I think of uh, their last draft pick, Quentin Bell, mm-hmm. out of Prairie View A&M. Oh. I, I, I know no one in this building knew him, you know, before before the draft. So we're going to get to know the, these type of people, and if we're fascinated, we're going to pass it on. And that you're right in that – the show really has two components. It's the star power that you you just have to tune in to watch every week. And then it's it's finding the young players who are fighting to make the roster, um, you know, with their families, uh, with their home situations, with their girlfriends. Um, it, it can be more fascinating than the stars because there's actually stakes. A lot. Of, listen, Antonio Brown doesn't have a lot at stake in the preseason. Mm-hmm. His stakes are week one, is he going to go out and lead this team when it counts and, and uh, kick butt as he was hired to do as a high-priced free agent. Training camp, you know, he wants to play well, I'm guessing, and uh, he doesn't want to get hurt, and he wants to get in shape and all that, but he's not fighting for a job. He's got his roster spot. Yeah. You know, a lot of these guys don't, and that's where the drama comes in. It's not maybe not the most entertaining compared to the stars, but it's certainly the most dramatic. I want to see you go to wine country on an off day with these guys. They don't get much off time there, but I wonder if anybody in on the Raiders roster is going to wind up in Napa, visiting a vineyard, going to some of the great restaurants, or maybe I have different curiosity levels <laughs> than other people there, Ken. Uh, 
I, well, I bet you have the same curiosity level as our crew. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm actually a little worried that we're going to have some rough mornings. Uh, you know, there's going to be early practice and hey, a 7 a.m. wake up calls, and we're going to we're going to have a little bit of a rough time. But listen, we'll rough it in Napa. We'll we'll get through. I'm sure it'll be tough, and you know, it's the hardest job you can think of, but. If someone's got to go to Napa yeah. and, uh, and and film with a football team, uh, we'll, we'll take guys. that bullet. Yeah. And before I let you go, Ken, I want to ask you about the Patriots special you have coming out before the season opens. Every year NFL Films does a great look back at that team's Super Bowl championship season. What do you have in store to tell New England's story for this upcoming season? Yeah, so we, I mean, every year, uh, really since uh, 2014, we've been highlighting not just our our longtime America's Game series, which features three players. Uh, that'll be done again with players this uh, this season from the Patriots. Uh, but we started interviewing the coaches hmm. and getting their particular point of view. And it started with the Patriots um, uh, after their Super Bowl win with the Seahawks because we just thought, how do, how did that happen? What happened on that final play? Let's let's talk to the coaches, and it was fascinating. Uh, and we called it "Do Your Job" uh, yeah. uh, from the Patriots, and uh, we'll now be doing our third one. The uh, Eagles did one called uh, called the Philly Special, and the Broncos did one worth the wait. And we've done them uh, with other teams, but. <laughs> Look, the Patriots keep winning. We'll just keep doing it with the Patriots. So this will be a, a coaching staff viewpoint, um, and it's something that has become a new franchise for the National Football League. And I don't think you can ever stop inventing new ways to to tell the story of this game. It's so complicated. It's so complicated. You, if you really dig down into it, into a let's say a Super Bowl team like the Patriots or the Eagles, it's not a story of that team winning the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. It's 53 stories. It's coming together, all merging into one big story. Yeah. I mean, you could do a documentary on each person and each season that everyone that was on that roster, all the backups who played on the scout team. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got their own story. Wait, wait, but, 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 but New England, is I would imagine. Look, they're now broken for camp. You're not going to do this during training. I would imagine you've already shot the Patriots series. Uh, we've started. We've started filming it. Um, certainly not done. And that's the uh, that's the challenge. As always, is there's so many programs that we want to do and are hired to do mm-hmm. that. There's just simply not enough time, and that is compounded this year at NFL Films by the arrival of the 100th anniversary of the National Football League. Ah, ah. Listen, Adam, we are underwater, and it's the greatest feeling ever, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, we love it. Uh, you know, work, the most memorable times in your life in a workplace are often the hardest as you're going through them. Yeah. You know, you think, oh, my God, I don't think I'm going to make it through this season or I'm not going to make it through this day. 
and you look back later and you go, boy, that was fun. I want to do that again. You know, that's how we feel about Hard Knocks. I know that's how we're going to feel about this 100th season because we're all grinding so hard now, but it's so important and so great to work on the history of the game and, and everything that's going to be surrounding the 100th season that at the end of it, we're going to all just be exhausted and probably fall on the ground two days after the Super Bowl and not have any words to, to express how tired we are. And we'll wake up the next morning and say, when can we do that again? Yeah, That was fun. I mean, that's the way it is in sports, and I think that's the way in jobs that you love. Look, and we are fired up to watch Hard Knocks this summer. It debuts August 6th. Five series, five episodes with the Oakland Raiders in wine country in Napa. You'll be leading the charge as the coordinating producer. I know that you and your crew are going to do a great job. And I know all of us, speaking for all the viewers there, are greatly looking forward to watching. It really kicks off, to me, the preseason of football. Absolutely. We hope to see you out there. Maybe you can join the crew in a, in a winery one night. <laughs> is that an open invite, Ken? It, it is. Uh, thank you. If I get out there... ESPN doesn't let me out of the cages, I like to say, very oh, often. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they don't, they don't send me very many places. I'm kind of chained to the desk there, and that's the way that it kind of goes. They like to have me there for sports centering, get up, and then NFL Live, and then the six. So I don't get to get out very often, not as much as I'd like, but maybe that'll change in the future. We'll see. Yeah, and Napa's very important. Tell them you have to go. Yeah, exactly. Well, Ken, I'm glad that you could take the time today to tell all the listeners here what goes into this production this summer thank you very much for the time good luck with hard knocks good luck with america's game and good luck with the hundred year celebration no thanks for that and thanks for having me it's been great we'll be back in a moment with new jets general manager joe douglas but first i want to tell you about better help is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals if so better help online counseling is there for you better help offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and so it's convenient. Get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code ADAM. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash ADAM. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash ADAM. And joining us now, the new general manager of the New York Jets, Joe Douglas. This is a little different for you, right? The way that all this has transpired, press conferences, podcasts, all these new things. It's, it's your new life. This is uh, surreal. This is a lot, a lot of talking, a lot of talking. And I think you'll, I think you'll do very, very well at that. Uh, I hope so. You know, I'm looking forward to listening some too, but uh, it's been, it's been good so far. Joe, from the time that you've gotten the job, Friday night, June 7th to now, there has been so much that is changing your life. Your family's moving from the Philadelphia area to New Jersey. You've gone on to meet all your new fellow employers in New Jersey. You're working with the Jets. You had a big press conference. What has been the biggest thing that has stood out from the time that you got this job to now? 
probably just how welcoming um, the environment here and uh, the Jets facility has been. Um, just just uh, walking through the building, shaking hands, getting meeting meeting people from different parts of the building, and uh, just uh, the way that uh, I've been embraced. It's uh, it's been it's been a really special week. Who embraced you in a way that you that surprised you? Like, because you would think that all your new fellow employees are going to embrace you warmly. I don't know why that would surprise you, but who left a mark on you like that? You know, it was, it was good catching up with a few of the players that I had, I had worked with before. Um, I'm telling you, just just uh, walking through the business side, uh, meeting people, you know, in ticket sales and uh, meeting the marketing department, uh, you know, getting getting to know uh, HR and and uh, you know the the um, the great people in our PR department. And uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if I can really pinpoint one specific person, but I can just say, you know, every, every person I've met, every, every department head uh, has just been great. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to just uh, getting to know them better and, uh, and developing an even better relationship moving forward. How does your family feel about being uprooted from the area they're in now to move to New Jersey? Uh, I think, I think they're excited. I really do. Um, you know, we we were able to make a lot of uh, a lot of great friends in uh, the Philadelphia area, um, living in South Jersey, and um, you know we're going to miss some of those people. But the good news is we're only an hour and a half away, so it's uh, not like we're moving across country. And uh, I think that's that's a comforting thing, knowing that we're uh, we're moving, but we're not moving that far. And um, you know, every, everyone's excited. That is pretty close. Those two teams, the Jets and the Eagles. I think people forget that sometimes. They they are very close. No, I mean it's basically uh, right up the turnpike. Cross cross the uh, Whitman or Ben Franklin and uh, hit the turnpike, and uh, you're, you're you're not too far away. Works out well, Joe. For those who don't know, you worked with the Baltimore Ravens from 2000 to 2014, the Bears in 2015, and the Eagles from 2016 to 2019. Tell me what you learned in Baltimore from a guy like Ozzie Newsom. Well, how, how long is this podcast? I mean, <laughs> this, could, this could take a while. Um, no, I mean, uh, Ozzie Newsom is just an unbelievable person. I mean, I think everyone knows. I mean, he's one of the uh, top 100 players of all time. He's, you know, one of the greatest tight ends in NFL history. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Famer at Alabama. He's, a, he's probably in every um, – Alabama High School Hall of Fame, everything, and you know he, he's he's an unbelievable person as well. And um, just just learning from him, um, really how you treat people, um, his consistency on how he uh, he handled his staff, um, his even keeled nature um, through turbulent times. Um, you know you could never you could never rattle Ozzy. Um, he was like the the uh, eye of the storm, um, just calm. You know, things could be be crazy around him, but he's he's calm. He's the rock. And uh, just watching how he operated for 15 years, how he treated us, you know, all of us, we would, you know, we would we would go to war with Oz, man. He's we knew he he had our back, uh, and he just uh, he's the absolute best. You went to Chicago for a year. You also had the chance to work in that year with Adam Gase, who was at the time the Bears' offensive coordinator. What did you learn then from him that will serve you well now as the Jets general manager while you're working together? 
well, I know how competitive he is. I mean, every every practice he treated like like a game, like a Super Bowl game. Um, you know, trying to beat the defense up. So love that competitive nature. Uh, love his aggressive mindset in his play calling. Uh, love love the uh, aggressive personality, the infectious personality, the way he's he's able to uh, challenge guys, and but also have a great rapport with the guys, and you know, chop it up, have a little fun. So um, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to. You know, just just spending some more time with Adam, and uh, you know, uh, being around him and, and his staff and uh, his players. Joe, make sure he doesn't walk off with your knapsack. My producer Josh Macri and I were interviewing him at the owners' meetings, and all of a sudden we finished up and he goes back to his room and I go to take my knapsack and I'm like this isn't my knapsack what whose knapsack this is Adam Gase's now he took my knapsack he he confiscated all my information he's a knapsack thief it, my my, my it, exactly he's a knapsack thief that's what he is and you have to be careful of that around the Jets complex so I just want to give you a fair warning about that in Philadelphia I appreciate that yeah because yeah. I'm a little bit of a pen thief you know if I <laughs> if, if I'm at someone's office and you know I write down a note I mean the odds are you're not getting your pen back well you, know, you could just trade him walking out of the office with that one you could trade him I, a knapsack for a pen yeah I, knapsack's got a lot more value than a pen on my trade charts well I think Jet fans so. will be very pleased to know that you quickly can determine the value of something like that <laughs> and that you'll get the better end on some of these trades that they're hoping that you do make here you know i'm willing to throw in a you know a stopwatch and a uh, maybe a mouse you know a keyboard Ooh. mouse you Ooh. know just to uh you know make the deal a little bit more fair well that's that's good now your time in philadelphia 2016 to 2019 get to work with doug peterson howie roseman what is the one thing that you learned from those men as you helped them win a super bowl Wow, um, I mean, just just the way Doug handled um, his his first year. Um, you know, we started off three and zero. Things were looking great. We, uh, you know, we 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 lost some guys. Uh, we hit some potholes along the way. We um, we finished the season seven and nine. And um, the way that he attacked that off season and how he was able to unify the team with his messaging and the type of guy he is. I mean, he's just a, he's as genuine and authentic of a person as you'll ever meet. And, um, you know, uh, he's a guy that says what he means and means what he says. And, um, you know, players believe in him. Um, and, you know, they believe in his aggressive mindset. And so, you know, I just, I loved, I loved how he managed the team you know, and, and Howie, you know, can't say enough great things about how, you know, the moves that Howie made to position that team, you know, you talk about the Carson Wentz trade, you talk about all the homegrown players when, when he came back, he re-signed, you know, to, to make it feel, to make the locker room feel like a safe place and, um, you know, the, the additions that we were able to add to that team, you know, that the culture that uh, we were able to build in that locker room. And I, I feel like it all came together in that 2017 season, and it really made that a special year. I think Howie, if he were offered enough, would be willing to trade one of his four children. <laughs> that, that's definitely going to uh, up the stakes of our knapsack pen trade. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't I, you know. I, I, I will say this. I mean, Howie's one of the best family men I've been around in this league. And, uh he he loves he loves he loves his wife, Mindy, and his, yes. his children. Uh, you know more than anything. And, and I'm not uh, saying he doesn't, Joe. I'm not saying he does. I'm yeah. just saying that he loves to trade as much as anything else. That's all I'm well, saying. He's you know I, yeah, it's going to take a lot, <laughs> but maybe. But no, I mean he's uh, you know he, he's he was um, 
he was great. I mean, he, he's a family first guy, and uh, it was great to have to have a uh, a person that you work with that that believes in that and believes in some of the same in a lot of the same things you do. And he, you know, if, if there was ever an issue with family, it was family first all the way, and uh, you know that that was awesome. Joe, when you were working there in Philadelphia, what do you remember about your scouting report on the Jets quarterback Sam Darnold? Yeah, that report uh, it was it was a pretty interesting report. Um, you know, I was able to to uh, go into USC that year. Um, was able to see Sam play live, and actually, it, it wasn't one of his best games. Um, it was against Notre Dame, and they struggled that game. Um, you know, they they uh, Notre Dame's offensive line had a had a heck of a day, and um, you know they were they were in catch up mode uh, a lot of the time. But the thing that stood out, even though they didn't win, they didn't win the game. Um, Sam battled, man. He he never he never backed down, and uh, he competed uh, all four quarters, even though things didn't go his way. So um, you know, that that stood out on my initial um, exposure to Sam. Then when I get back and watch the tape after after the uh, season's over, um, see a lot of special traits uh, with him. You know the the athleticism, the uh, quick release, the accuracy, the ability to go through progressions quickly. You know all the things that you know make quarterbacks uh, good in this league. Um, I think he's a young man that has those traits. And what stood out to you about the rest of the Jets roster that you are inheriting? You know, there's some exciting young young pieces. You know, when you talk about a guy like Jamal Adams, you know, just a fierce competitor, warrior mentality. Uh, you have Quinton Williams, who's one of the best D linemen, if not the best D linemen in this past uh, year's draft. Uh, Leonard Williams, young, young, talented uh, defensive lineman, and then you mix mix those with some, you know, um, you know, additions, some really good additions uh, like C.J. Mosley, you know, the best linebacker in the free agent market. Le'Veon Bell, best running back in the free agent market. You know, guys like uh, Kalecio Semele, you know, rugged, tough guard. You know, uh, and then, and then a lot of people uh, might not recognize his name, but a guy like Robbie Anderson, you know, explosive vertical threat uh, that you have to be aware of on the outside. I mean, there they really are some some uh, very good building blocks here. I think Robbie's got a chance of a very big season. He's taking care of himself this off season, and right. when he's right and healthy, has a chance to be very formidable. He's he's dangerous. I mean, all you have to do is throw on last year's game against the Broncos. He. Uh, he showed what he could do. Did you sit down when you were interviewing for the Jets job and watch this roster like that? Because you just brought up a performance that Robbie Anderson had against the Broncos. Do you watch things like that before you accept the job? Did you watch this team after you took the job? How does that work? Yeah, so, you know, once once the notification came in um, from the Jets and, you know, Howie and I talked about the opportunity, you want to be prepared. Uh, you want to be prepared to talk about the roster, and so uh, I was able to go back. Uh, had had a few days to prepare for the interview, and part of that preparation was was watching game tape. You know, I can't sit here and say I watched all 16 games, um, but I was able to watch uh, at least uh, four games on both sides of the ball just to get a little bit of feel, uh, so I could talk talk about the roster before the interview. And that worked out pretty well, I guess. <laughs> I think so. Well, what stood out about that interview there, Joe, to you? Yeah, uh, it was great because, you know, I drive up, 
And so, you know, it was, it was an easy drive up, and uh, luckily no traffic up on the turnpike. And I was able to get in, uh, check into the hotel, run, in, r- run right into Christopher Johnson, uh, able to spend a couple minutes with him before we went out to dinner. And, you know, his first impression is, uh, wow, this is a good man. You know, uh, just a genuine, just a genuine, straightforward, uh, honest guy. Just, just you could tell that within the first, you know, couple me- minutes of meeting him. Uh, go out to dinner, have a great time um, with uh, with Christopher, Adam, um, some some other assistants here that I had the opportunity to work with in Chicago, our general counsel, Jaime uh, uh, High, and you know that uh, you're able to just get to. You, it's good to see people that you're familiar with, get to know people that uh, you know you're just meeting, you know, break bread, and then uh, the next day have a great interview. Um, and and having uh have a chance to spend more time with Christopher uh get to know him better uh what he, what his mission is for this team um his vision for this team um how he how he uh see what what success means to him and um i think i think uh we were able to have alignment in a lot of our vision of what it takes to to build a winning team so you get the general manager job when was the first time that you ever thought I'd like to be an NFL general manager. I mean, you you have those thoughts when you decide you want to get into personnel. So, I think probably probably college. You know, once I decided that I wanted to stay in football, um, you, you know that you're not when you when you finally when it finally sinks in that you're probably not going to get an opportunity as a player, but you want to stay in. You know, the next decision is, okay, do I want to pursue a career in coaching or uh, personnel? And the personnel side always intrigued me. I love the behind-the-scenes as- aspect of team building, um, kind of under, back then at least, very much under the radar. Um, obviously now with the, the way the combine and the draft is televised, it's out front. But I always love the behind-the-scenes aspects. And so as, as you do more research and you're talking to people and you you kind of see how personnel departments are set up and, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate goal is to be a general manager. And so, you know, just growing up in, in Virginia area and, you know, seeing a high profile general manager like Bobby Beathard, you know, what he was able to do with the Washington Redskins back in the eighties and early nineties. And, you know, Hey, that seems like a pretty cool profession, you know, um, work, work alongside a hall of fame head coach and do something pretty special. So uh, that always intrigued me. Well, now, look, the general manager role is new, but you've been in the personnel departments. How has being in those personnel departments matched up to what you envisioned as a young guy coming out of Richmond? Uh, being in those personnel departments, you know, having an opportunity to when, when I first stepped foot into an NFL building to be around uh, unbelievable evaluators and personnel people, you know, guys like we talked about earlier, Ozzie Newsome, yeah. guys like Phil Savage, guys like uh, Shaq Harris, uh, guys like Terry McDonough, um, TJ McCrate, Joe Hortiz, you know, and then uh, having a chance to work with, uh, you know, just stars in this pers- in, in this profession, you know, uh, Daniel Jeremiah, Jeremiah Washburn. I mean, you work with so many good people and you, you really build a, a special bond and brotherhood with those guys and um you know we had great groups of guys and we were able to uh we were able to share the same vision because Ozzy gave us great direction and um able to hire unbelievable people and we were able to uh come together and we didn't always agree 
on uh, we didn't always agree on players, but we always respected each other, and we were always able to to uh, have uh, good good talks, you know, and uh, come to a conclusion of what's best, you know, as a Baltimore Raven. And then you go to Chicago, and you're you're working for a for a guy like Ryan Pace, who was a great communicator, a great great young leader, and bringing in different perspectives. You know, guys, he, he came from New Orleans. Um, Champ Kelly came from Denver. Uh, I came from Baltimore, and it was, you know, this isn't going to be the Saints' way. We, we're going to, we're going to think of, uh, we're going to come together, we're going to collaborate, we're going to create, create the Bears' way, and uh, it, it's, it was really, it was bittersweet, you know, this this past year in the playoffs. It was, but it was great to see, uh, it was great to see what they've been able to accomplish in Chicago under, under Ryan's leadership, you know, from uh, where that team was in '15 to where it is now. So. It, it was great to just maybe play just a, a little small role in that, and then going to Philadelphia and being with these, these special people. I mean, I, I've been I've been blessed to be a part of uh, some unbelievable personnel departments. Now I don't know how much history you know of the New York Jets franchise. Probably you've studied quite a bit of it while you have interviewed and gotten the job. But do you have any sense of what it would mean to the Jets fan base to bring a championship to the New York New Jersey area? You know, uh, I'm I'm sure once I get around some fans and get to talking to them, I'm going to know exactly what that means. And I and I got to think it would mean uh, about a, the same as it meant to Philadelphia. Um, you know, uh, they were starved for a championship, and uh, you know, I know uh, it, it's it's there's been a few years since the last championship here, and you know I've. I've heard that uh, this is one of the best fan bases of all in all football, and I can't wait to meet these fans. I can't wait to see the passion and excitement they bring to Jets games. You know, uh, uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be exciting, and I can't wait to uh, to see and meet them. And um, you know, I I, I got to think it's uh, it would mean everything to them to bring a championship back to. the Back to Jets Nation. I think that's a good analogy, Joe, the Philadelphia one, because as a guy who grew up on Long Island, surrounded by Jets fans, and a guy who still is contacted by Jets fans on a regular basis, asking what their team is going to be, I can tell you, I don't think there are too many fan bases who want something like that more than them because of how starved they are, because of how bad the team had been, has been for so long. It's It would mean a lot to a lot of different people. So I wish you the best of luck in your efforts to bring all those people that I know for so long. Great oh, happiness. No. I appreciate that. That is the mission. You know, that is that is the end goal to just build build this team with the right type of people. And you know, we're 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 competing to win championships every year. Joe, thanks for the time today. Lots of luck as the new general manager of the New York Jets, and I do appreciate the time you gave us. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. And there he is, the new Jets general manager, Joe Douglas. Thank you to him. And thank you to the creative producer behind Hard Knocks, Ken Rogers, who joined us to talk about the decision to film the Oakland Raiders this summer and what will go on as NFL Films brings us the great series, Hard Knocks. And before I sign off for this week, I did want to salute a friend of mine who lost his life late Thursday night, the former Denver Broncos owner, Pat Bowling, who was a great owner and an even better man. He had blue eyes that were steely blue that led some people to think that he had this frosty, cold look to him. But when you got behind those steely blue eyes, you found an incredibly warm, caring, 
engaging man who, in the words of one NFL executive I spoke to this weekend, described him as a man's man. And I think that really is the best way to describe Pat Bowen, whose contributions to the NFL are too numerous to count. But if we're going to count them, some of them, Sunday Night Football probably would not exist without Pat Bowen. Fox might not have football today were it not for Pat Bowen. The Broncos would not be the great franchise that they are were it not for Pat Bowen. And I selfishly can say that I would not have been put on the career path that I was were it not for Pat Bowen, who would often invite me into his office, counsel me both personally and professionally. I can't tell you the number of times we talked about dating and marrying people. He was married twice. And here was a guy that when I was working as a cub reporter back in Colorado and working on the side for a local TV station that worked with the Broncos, but yet would never let me travel on the team plane, which always bothered me. Everyone could always go, but I never could. Pat Bowen said, if we ever win the Super Bowl, you can come back on the team plane. And I said, really, Mr. Bowen? And he said, absolutely. And so when the Denver Broncos won Super Bowl 32 and beat the Green Bay Packers in what was and still is, I think, one of the most memorable Super Bowls that was ever played, the Broncos celebrated that win, and I saw Pat Bowen after the game, and he said, you're coming back on the team plane. And I flew back from San Diego, not only on the Broncos team charter, which was the first time that I had ever flown on a team charter, but I flew in first class, seated next to Pat Bowen and the Vince Lombardi Trophy. We brought it back to Denver together. And as I was flying high above the Rocky Mountains, I remember thinking, what the heck did I do to deserve this great honor of riding next to this great man with this trophy that is going back to have an incredibly memorable Super Bowl parade through downtown Denver? But Pat held to his word. He kept to it. He was a great man, and he challenged so many people in so many ways. The story that I love to tell is when I was running the Boston Marathon back in 2003 and raising money for the Children's Hospital in Denver. I went around soliciting donations from some people I knew, and one of the people I asked to make a donation was Pat Bowen himself. And he sent me back a letter that I really wish I had today, and maybe I do somewhere, but I'd have to find it. And in that letter, it said, Adam, if you run the Boston Marathon and beat my all-time best marathon time of three hours, 20 minutes, and 50 seconds, I think it was, and Pat had run a bunch of marathons back in the day and was in tremendous shape and was a workout warrior. But he said, if you beat my all-time best marathon time, I will donate $26,200 to Children's Hospital in your name. If you run the marathon in under four hours, I will donate $2,620 to Children's Hospital in your name. If you finish the marathon at all, $1,000 to Children's Hospital in your name. But, and there's always a but, but if you don't finish the race, you will donate $1,000 to Children's Hospital in my name. 2003, let's see, that would have made me about 37 years old. Newspaper reporter, wasn't doing all that great. But again, how do you not take on this bet for Pat Bowen, even if it would have been a huge amount of my savings at that time to donate to Children's Hospital? And so I agreed to that deal, and I started the race that day, and I was completely and inappropriately attired for that race. The forecasters had said it would be about 45, 50 degrees overcast, and as soon as the race started, the clouds broke, the sun came out, the temperature rose, 
and it was about 70 degrees, and I am in a black fleece-lined outfit. And by the third mile, I started cramping up in a way that I never had during my training runs. And by the sixth mile, I began feeling as if I had aliens coming out of my calves. And by the ninth mile, there was a sensation that I've never had before and probably never will again. And I'm not joking when I say this. I could no longer raise my arms. Literally could not get them up. And all I could think of was, oh my God, I'm going to owe Pat Bowen $1,000 for not finishing the marathon. That was my thought the entire time as I willed myself to finish the marathon in four hours and 42 minutes and 50 seconds. And the next day when I flew back to Denver, I was so sick on that flight, I would rather have run another marathon the very next day than experience what I did on that return flight to Denver. I was sick, rolling around the floor, writhing in pain. And as soon as we landed in Denver, after they paged doctors on board, and I was in pain for the entire flight, they loaded me onto a stretcher, rushed me to a hospital in Denver, and diagnosed me with what they called rhabdomyolysis, where your liver and kidneys shut down. And I spent about three or four days in the hospital, incurred tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills. But all I could think the entire time was I did not have to write a check to Children's Hospital for $1,000 in the name of Pat Bowen. But that name today carries on, will always carry on, and means so much to so many people. I want to express my sincere condolences to the entire Bowen family. They have lost a great man. And so many have lost a friend. I love that man. He was great. He was one of the first people that showed me what it took to become a reporter in this business. And I will always be indebted to him. And I always will remember him like anybody else who knew Pat Bowen. So thank you, Pat Bowen. May you always rest in peace. We'll be back again next week for another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us as we'll be in Jacksonville to sit down to talk with the Jaguars head coach, Doug Marone and the Jacksonville Jaguars cornerback, Jalen Ramsey. Until then, have a great week, everybody.